Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is out today and tomorrow. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us from Tel Aviv, columnist for the Jerusalem Post, columnist for the Jewish News Service, uh, editor at the Jewish News Service, uh, commentator on every Israeli television program you can possibly imagine, and my sister, Ruthie Bloom. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, John. Um, okay, so before we get to Ruthie's uh, uh, deep analysis of the uh, of the uh, ongoing and never-ending Israeli political electoral crisis, I just want to report to everybody that we have a new piece of commentary merch in the merch store at merch.commentarymagazine.com. It is a mug. It is a Keep the Candle Burning Commentary Magazine podcast mug, beautiful black with red type and white type. And it's beautiful, designed by our uh, art director and publisher, Carol Moscott. 20 bucks for the mug. If you didn't want the T-shirt, if you didn't want the tote bag, if you didn't want the sweatshirt, get yourself a mug. It's a high-quality mug. We, we made sure to get the best possible mug that you could possibly have because you are special to us. And, y- and we want you to enjoy your coffee as you listen to the Commentary Magazine podcast. So merch.commentarymagazine.com for the Keep the Candle Burning Commentary Magazine podcast mug. 20 bucks gets you a mug. Go there. Do thou likewise. Now, uh, Ruthie. Bibi Netanyahu has been prime minister since 2009. It is now 2021, and for the last two years, uh, he has um, uh, had to uh, call four elections uh, because his uh, government couldn't survive uh, at, at each given point. The fourth election took place was like 10 days ago, something like that. Uh, or a week ago, I don't know. Anyway, some some point uh, on the twenty third, yes, on the tw- uh, week ago, yesterday. Okay, so twenty third, so it's nine days ago, right? Okay, so it's nine days ago, and uh, his party Likud uh, has the most seats. You need sixty one seats to form a government. Likud has thirty. Uh, the next party, which is led by, which is the premier anti BB party, let's just put it that way, run by Yair Lapid. Yeshatid has uh, seventeen, I believe, um, and uh, the BB coalition, uh, as it is currently constituted, has about fifty two seats out of the sixty one needed. The anti BB coalition, with the largest uh, share coming from uh, Yeshatid has a few more, 55, 56, 57. Neither of them right now can form a government. Um, So uh, there's going to be a fifth election, or do you think that Bibi can pull another rabbit out of his hat and and jury rig something so that he gets to 61 seats? Uh, I think there's going to be another election because... Uh, in the first place, I don't see how anyone can form a coalition. It's not just Netanyahu. Um, in fact, Netanyahu it has a greater possibility of forming a coalition than the others. But even if the others do form a coalition, um, it's one that will last maybe a year, if that. And the reason is that though uh, the way this is being reported is that this is a pro-Netanyahu versus anti-Netanyahu election, in fact, 
the right wing in Israel overwhelmingly won this election. When you mean overwhelmingly, what you mean is not only in the number of seats, but I think in the number, though it doesn't work this way, right? Yeah, in the number of seats, the parties, yes. So the, the parties... The, so the 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 right wing parties, as you might call them, uh, if they all reached, joined together, yeah. if they all joined together, there would be a, a real easy coalition, and there is where the like sixty five seats yeah, or something like that. Okay, easily. Um, so th- the public is overwhelmingly right wing. Okay, and though this is not the way things are counted obviously in a system like this if you if you count the aggregate vote like the aggregate popular vote uh i think didn't didn't likud end up with even though likud only has half the number of seats necessary right only to form the coalition it got about 47% of the vote or something do i have that yeah, a million, a million, it got a million votes. I'm not sure how, uh, yeah, maybe it's 47%. Um, but the Likud party is not the only one. In fact, the Likud party is actually the center, although the enemies try to portray it as the far right or something. It's actually, uh, if anything, it's center right. It's the Likud. Um, and the reason that this election is being called pro-Netanyahu or anti-Netanyahu is precisely because some of the right-wingers um, are doing everything they can to oust Netanyahu and therefore did not join the coalition, the natural coalition for them. Right, so and there two are two, parties, two major parties, right? Two parties... One new, right. one old. One is Yamina, right. One is Yamina, uh, headed by Naftali Bennett. Um, and he has been trying desperately to, uh, to become prime minister in the last few cycles, one of which he didn't even uh, pass the threshold after trying to do that. He didn't even get into the Knesset. And briefly, he was defense minister. Uh, in in Netanyahu's interim government two elections ago. Um, but so he's one of them, and, and he's to the right of Netanyahu. And the other is Gidon Saar, who created, who broke off from Likud very recently to form something called the New Hope Party. Right. He was the, spe- he was the speaker of the Knesset, so he was the, he was the head of the Likud A long party. time ago, he, was, he had many... No, okay. he had many jobs in Likud. He was been he's been different had different ministries, and he tried unsuccessfully to run in a primary in the Likud against Netanyahu and lost very badly. Um, so he uh, left politics briefly and then came back, and then recently he formed his own party. Now, his politics are like those of Likud. Some people say he's to the right of Netanyahu as well. Now, both he and Naftali Bennett fared way worse than the polls had predicted. Originally, the polls predicted that each of them would get double-digit amount of seats, and neither did it. One got seven seats, the other got six seats. But their seats together would give Netanyahu a coalition, a right-wing coalition, uh, but they don't want to do that because they want Bibi out of 
Balfour is what they say. Balfour is the address, the street name of the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem. Right. So it's like 10 Downing Street, Balfour. So, um, so, and, and, and the sole purpose of their candidacies is to be anti-Bibi. Yes. And except in Naftali Bennett's case, it's he wants to be prime minister. Um, as opposed to Gidon Saar and even Yair Lapid, the head of Yesh Atid, the next biggest party, even he has said, okay, fine, I'll forfeit being prime minister as long as we kick Netanyahu out. I'll form any kind of coalition just to get him out. But Naftali Bennett actually wants to be prime minister. He wants to lead the the, the brigade against Netanyahu. Right. Now let's talk about what this means politically, because in the American context, this is nonsensical beyond belief, though not necessarily in the Israeli political context, which is that Naftali Bennett, who was a close aide to Bibi and then fell out with him in a deeply personal fashion in some manner relating to Bibi's wife, Sarah, about 10 years ago, uh, Bennett would have been the natural successor to Bibi in some sense, politically, ideologically, um, has many things in common with Bibi, speaks English very well, has an entrepreneurial business background, uh, various other things, but they, they have a, they have a deep personal hostility to each other. But the weird part about this is that Bennett wants to be prime minister and there's all this maneuvering about whether something could happen where he could be. His party won seven seats out of 120. So that's right. Seven seats. He doesn't even have, that's like 5% or something, four and a half percent of the Knesset. And he is somehow supposed to then build a coalition in which he becomes, he generally speaking, you call somebody like this a kingmaker because he has a small number of votes uh, that can, you know, form or destroy a coalition. But the kingmaker doesn't become a king by definition because he doesn't have enough exactly. support. Exactly. So you have this thing where Bibi's got 30 seats, he's got seven, and somehow the guy with seven seats who has very much the same ideological proclivities as the guy with 30 is somehow going to end up being the prime minister when the public had a chance to pick him over the other and didn't it's uh it's uh it's mashuga as we say in uh it is yes. it is but there to make matters more complicated there's another right wing party that we haven't mentioned and that party is called Israel Beitenu and it's headed by Avigdor Lieberman and none of these four elections would have happened, or none of the last three would have happened, had Lieberman not at the last minute. He was the kingmaker in the first round of elections two years ago. And when that election was over, Netanyahu declared victory because he had a, a clear majority. And Lieberman said, ah, changed my mind, not joining you or anybody else. And he is responsible for the whole mess we're in right now. I mean, not he's not responsible for the, the mess since then, but he has been refusing to join Netanyahu 
also because of a personal rivalry. Right. Okay. So, so this is, this is the, the, the state of play. So let's, let's pull back and make this less uh, tactical or structural and more, um, more historical. Uh, so, um, BB has been prime minister for 12 years, uh, through, uh, I guess five elections, the first one he won and then the, or maybe seven elections. I don't know, something like that. Um, and, uh, there is a classic rule of thumb in uh, democratic uh, countries with the possible exception of the United States in the middle of the, uh, you know, in the middle of the, of world war two, which is that, um, you just you can't stay in power uh, that long uninterruptedly. Well, uh, Angela Merkel has been in power that long. Right, okay, but she and she's done. By the way, she after right. her last election, right. she was cooked, and she said, "I'm I understand that I have overstayed my welcome. So when this when this term is over, I'm gone." Uh, Tony Blair. I mean, you can name you could. This is there is a there is a sort of a right. world historical fact, including in states governors stuff like that in, in the united states it's just too much people get bored the political system can't handle it they've had enough there's scandals that develop uh, even though i think we've had you on before to talk about bb's the three uh this the the three indictments, uh, indictments of bb that um you think and i think and a lot of people think are pretty garbage but he is under, you know, but he is sort of now, uh, the, the trials are commencing. So there's always sort of corruption stuff, tired stuff and all of that. And, uh, and, you know, BB in some natural sense, after the inability to win one of these four elections outright or, or, or easily or something like that in a more conventional political moment, he probably would have given up the ghost. He would have looked at things and said, look, I had this fantastic run and, you know, obviously people are tired. I can't do this anymore. So he decided not to do that. And here's the irony. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Unlike the last couple of elections, the last 12 months of Bibi's uh, prime ministership have arguably been the most successful, not only of his tenure, but of any democratic leaders in the world to these two historic and massive accomplishments. One, the Abraham Accords, the peace, uh, the peace with the UAE and, uh, you know, uh, various other, uh, Bahrain, Bahrain and, uh, uh, Sudan, Morocco. Sudan, Morocco with the, with the clear intimation that, Saudi Arabia may be close at hand. That's number one. And then number two was this astonishing vaccination achievement that we can also go into later. Under normal political circumstances or under a normal understanding of politics, he should be coasting to landslide victories. He has proven at a moment of both crisis and opportunity to have political skills and, you know, and managerial skills and this deal that he struck with Pfizer on, on, on getting this massive amount of vaccination on the grounds that Israel could serve as the sort of Petri dish test case, 
you know, uh, a global study for the uh, for the viability of of the of the uh, Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. And here he is, one election later. Uh, the last election, he got thirty-seven seats, and this time he got thirty. That's crazy. No, I mean, exp- can you give me a sense? It isn't. It isn't because if those two parties, Bennett and uh, and Saar, if they hadn't uh, split and if they hadn't been against him personally, he would be coasting into the premiership again, um, and. Bennett, for his part, was running on the ticket that Netanyahu failed at the coronavirus handling, which is ridiculous to be, to put it mildly. But that's because until the vaccines came, everyone was blaming Netanyahu both for the deaths of, you know, for the patients, the the critical patients and the deaths, and for the demise of the economy, which it hasn't uh, died or anything, but a lot of people lost their jobs and small businesses closed. So until the vaccination campaign, he was being blamed for that. And then once the vaccination campaign happened, a lot of people sort of forgave him for that. But uh, Bennett continued to say he handled the crisis badly. That's number one. Um, number two, where the Abraham Accords are concerned the left, okay, so far we've been talking about his, his enemies on the right. His enemies on the left never give him credit for anything. And they, um, many of them were kind of huffy about the Abraham Accords too, because the Palestinians weren't included in the deals. And so, um, so whereas from the outside you say, look, look what these incredible achievements but the left thinks that Netanyahu is at fault for a lack of peace with the Palestinians, you see. So in some ways, they consider that great achievement uh, to be severely lacking. How, how much can I uh, how much does his personal uh, style of politics, because we, we, you've both mentioned several leaders who now no longer, you know, who dislike him intensely and are acting on that politically because they've had a personal break with him. How much does his style impact uh the reaction of this recent election because we talk a lot about here uh, on here about like andrew cuomo and the, the sort of hubris of some of our leaders in the u.s and how that weirdly doesn't get reflected in some of the polling data and support for them how, what do you see about netanyahu's particular personality that that might have benefited him at the beginning of his uh, political life but in in some ways is curdled public opinion about him now um, that's that's a good question because I think that over the years, um, even his worst enemies uh, grudgingly admit that he's statesmanlike, presentable. I mean, the opposite of what Americans said about Donald Trump, for example. Even many Trump supporters, uh, Netanyahu supporters, never accuse him of being Trump-like, but his detractors often do. Um, and, and in order to, uh, make fun of him or belittle him in some way in his personal, uh, demeanor, they go after his wife and his son, his elder son, who is also on Twitter all the time. And I must say, um, if I were that kid's mother, he's not a kid, he's 28 or something. 
I'd smack him across his face and tell him to stay off social he's still, media. He's still a kid. Yeah, he's still a kid. <laughs> he's still well, a kid if you're his he mom. He lives at home, you know. He doesn't exactly have a job. And if I were his mother, certainly if I were his father, I'd tell him to stop doing that. But uh, that's one way that his enemies get to him. And the other is by saying that he has killed Israeli democracy, which, of course, is nonsense. Um, I, I, I have a question. St- sticking with the, um, the the mention of Trump here, something that we you know return to uh, on the podcast a lot is this question of um, does Trump destroy everything he touches? Um, so, in what sense, to what degree, has um, Bibi's close relationship with Trump um, come into play this time around, and uh, particularly? Also, to, to what extent um, has the fact that Trump lost and now it's Biden uh, in the White House uh, who spent the first, I don't know how long, uh, how many days at this point, uh, when it, what it was um, before he reached out to, uh, uh, to Bibi uh, from the Oval Office? Well, that's also that's a great question. Uh, I think that Biden's election had a lot to do with these, this election result in the sense that um, it provided Netanyahu's enemies on the left in particular, okay, his enemies on the right have a, um, um, uh, a bigger problem in this respect because his enemies on the right also loved Trump. So, and they loved Trump's policies. But the left hated Trump and hated Netanyahu for many of the same reasons. And so um, what what Biden's election helped them do was, especially at the height of the pandemic and uh, a lot more dead people and all that, was to say, okay, Netanyahu has destroyed Israel's relationship with the Democratic Party in the United States, and we need somebody who's going to heal the rift, you see? So it had an effect, there's no question. But again... Can, did it have an effect on the general public? Not really, because the general public is right wing. So that's why this election has been called, as opposed to this election is not divided along left and right lines, but rather along pro and anti Netanyahu lines. And the one thing I wanted to respond to, John, what you said before about leaders wearing out their welcome after so many years, and that's true. But Here's my question to you. If you look at at the results of these elections and you see Netanyahu's Likud way ahead of every other party, including the the second largest, then you have to ask yourself, really? He should step down now? He should step aside when he garnered more votes than anybody anybody else? I mean, that's also kind of, you have to say, what leader does that? You quit when you're ahead? I mean, that's a good question, too. No, uh, look, I, 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 I think that's absolutely the case. I'm just saying that, that, that what you, what you have here and whether it's because Gidon Sar ran or Bennett did this or, you know, Lieberman did that, BB's party lost 20% of its seats. But from one election to the next, after a year in which he was um, both tested and uh, and and uh, did was part of the most creative uh, diplomatic achievement of the 21st century, and 
was tested sorely. And as the election, as people were going to the polls, uh, it just strikes me, I'm not there, but it strikes me that there should have been this surge of national pride in the, in the notion that this, you know, little country somewhere was leading the world in the, in the escape from, or the emergence from this, um, uh, you know, worldwide virus crisis. And instead, it's not that he got his hat handed to him, but, um, you know, it, it shouldn't have been that way somehow. That that's all I'm that's all I'm saying. It's not like Bennett did well, right? He you, you yourself are saying that between Bennett and Saar, they got thirteen seats or something like that. And you know, Bennett is arguably. I mean, this is the this is the most bizarre part of this. Uh, if it were not for the personal animosity between them and the personal animus that had Bennett sort of like um, either banish himself or get banished from BB's inner circle or something like that. Bennett is absolutely the the heir, theoretically, and BB doesn't want an heir. He never wanted it, and this is his terrible, in my view, this is his terrible political mistake that he has now generated for himself, which is that he can't stay in power forever. We now have five, there's going to be five elections that are entirely based on the idea that he cannot maintain a government. Right. It's been two years, four elections in two years. Even if he forms this government, it won't last very long. So he is now a weak leader, not a strong leader. Although when he is a leader, he then is a strong leader. But politically. Right, because all those accomplishments that you mentioned yeah, yeah. <laughs> happened while he was in the midst of a huge you know, coalition crisis infighting. I mean, that's the incredible thing. I have to say, that's the way in which Netanyahu is so incredible. Um, even when you can't stand him, you say he has this ability to function on, it's not just those two accomplishments. Let's not forget another important one. Throughout this entire period that we're talking about, repeated elections, he has been fighting a shadow war and not so shadow with Iran in Syria, and even in Iran itself. Um, he, you know, that that's also no small thing. You know, we're right. sitting here safely because of him. Now, here's one other complication I want to say. Naftali Bennett's voters, it's not merely that they want him to be Netanyahu's heir, so to speak. Um, they, uh, their problem is they blame Netanyahu for not extending sovereignty to Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley, which Netanyahu did not do because Trump, the Trump administration asked that he hold off on that so that he could get those Abraham Accords signed. And he did that. And that is also an example of his leadership. So, you know, I'm not so sure that, that Naftali Bennett is an heir to Likud in that sense. Uh, can I, what, one thing on the airpoint, uh, I, it's really interesting because democracies tend to punish the people who say it's my turn now because I, you know, th this was the Hillary Clinton problem, right? She's like, I've done everything I'm supposed to. I've checked every box. It's my turn. And the voters punished her for that. 
people like Trump obviously don't want heirs because that you know detracts attention from them. But we've never really had a good system, at least in the U.S., where you can even groom an heir. Voters tend to punish anyone who's given that designation because it's kind of seen as unfair, right? We want to throw everybody into the ring and pick who we want. Um, is that is the same thing true? Like, where do you? Why hasn't Netanyahu done that, and have previous leaders successfully done that in a way that he could have mirrored but didn't? Well, you know, Netanyahu, because here's the thing, Netanyahu is a great leader and he has um, very severe character flaws, severe ones. <laughs> and, um, you know, let's not forget, he's a human being as well. And so aside from having a big ego and all those other things that, you know, I mean, he's a politician. Um, he actually doesn't believe that anybody else could lead Israel the way he does. Now, he could be right, but you know, recently somebody pointed out something very important. The last leader in Israel who lasted so long, not as long as Netanyahu, but almost, was David Ben-Gurion, the, Israel's first prime minister. And he was a huge figure. I mean, he established the state and I mean, he was a, a powerhouse and charismatic and all that. And when, and who succeeded him was Levi Eshkol. Nobody really had heard of him. And today, nobody really mentions him. But he turned out to be a fine prime minister. So uh, some people have been bringing that up, that, okay, so we don't have another Netanyahu right now on this on the political scene. So what? So, so that means we can never have another leader? Of course not. And there's truth to that, too. Well, democracies or, you know, representative, uh, representative republics or whatever you want to call them, uh, are, are the, the leaders, uh, abilities, talents, vision, and all of that is supposed to emanate from the public. Not, uh, they're not, you know, it's not out of their own heads, like, like Athena, they're, they're supposed to marshal a kind of representative opinion in the vast center and then execute. And so in theory, if Israeli democracy is either healthy or whatever it is, someone will come along and have the same kinds of possibilities uh, in their, in their quiver. And Bibi has done an, you know, extraordinary things, but you know, if you were hit by a truck tomorrow, somebody else would become prime minister. And I don't think we would then assume that the country would slide into the Mediterranean because somebody else was, was in, it was in on, on Balfour street, you know, it's a, and he can make that mistake. And obviously he can believe that no one can do what he did and that the country can't survive him. But we, but you know, generally speaking, democratic populations uh, should not think that way. And uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, I've said he lasted too long. He made a mistake. You know, it's four elections, all of this. But again, the last year has been the capstone or the cornerstone of his of his achievements, uh, which are you know unbelievably considerable, right? But beginning in 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 2009 you know he systematically uh sidelined uh the palestinian authority uh seems to have eliminated the hamas as a as a threat in gaza um fought the shadow war against iran including you know all the stuff that we don't know about that related to the 
degradation of Iran's nuclear program <clears throat> kept Hezbollah from waging war in the north somehow. Again, we don't quite know how for, from Lebanon. Um, extended all these diplomatic uh, relationships long before the Abraham Accords, right, uh, outside of the relationship with the United States to strengthen its position in all these places and helped shepherd both this uh, uh, mammoth oil field discovery and, you know, uh, the, 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 the growth of Israel's uh, economy now Israel is what the 28th or the 27th richest country in the world. Uh, I mean, he didn't, he doesn't deserve credit for that precisely, but he also didn't choke it in its crib the way, you know, or he didn't do things that would, would, that would, would have retarded the growth the way other politicians might have. It's an unbelievable set of accomplishments. And yet there he is with 30 seats <laughs> instead of 36 or 37. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the little thing that, you know, it's sort of hard to get away from, it seems to me. And, and uh, well, what we don't know, the one thing we don't know here is had he stepped down uh, before this election, how many seats Likud would have gotten? That's what we don't know. What we know is everybody says if he would only quit we'd have a government in five minutes. That's the, you know, the, I mean, anybody, his, his detractors say that. And I say, really? Because, le- because the electoral system here is crazy anyway, okay? Every idiot can form a party. And by the way, I just think it's insane how many parties ran in this election. Um, uh, not to mention the amount that passed the threshold, but there were 39 parties running. I mean, it's crazy. It's everybody with some, you know, some idea has to run. Many of these parties shouldn't be separate. Merit and labor are exactly the same. Um, There are many similarities among the religious parties. There are similarities. And the point is that, um, you know, it would be so much easier as it is in the United States in some respects that you have basically the Democrats and the Republicans. And it's not when you vote for a democratic candidate that you love everything about the party. Of course not. But you know what side you're on or you choose a side. And here it's like, how can you choose a side among 50 sides? And you know, so, so, you know, that's what we don't know. And sometimes I really would love to tell everybody, really, you think that, okay, let's see what happens when BB's time is finished. Then let's see. Who vote? How we vote? Because I personally would still vote Likud, even though there are many people in that party I can't stand, but I would vote for it because it's the closest to my uh, to my ideology, and uh, you know, which is centrist, but not it's not left wing and it's not far right wing, and it's you know, so I would still vote for that party. And listen, you know, this is enough to give you, just talking about this is enough to give you a backache. So if you want to avoid a backache, you want to enjoy your time sitting in a chair worrying about politics, I want to talk to you about the X chair. Because if you're not in an X chair, uh, what you got to do, you got to get rid of your chair and go get yourself uh, an X chair. Because the X chair, which I got a couple of weeks ago and have enjoyed immensely ever since, has patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to my lower back. And with their new XHMT technology, you also get heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk. 
that uh, XHMT delivers this heat and massage technology right to your core. It increases blood flow, it increases muscle recovery and energy, all perks that make working from home or the office in the X chair a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when you're sore. Instead of that old, uncomfortable office chair, look forward the way I do to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. And as I said, unlike most luxury supercars, which give you a backache if you try to get into them because they're like lying there on the road, this one makes you feel good from the moment you sit in it. It's on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So uh, in so we're going to move off the BB uh, story and talk a little about vaccines and vaccinations, stuff like that. We are now in uh, day three this week of a controversy with our with our listeners, many of whom are emailing uh, me uh, and, and us uh, in, in great anger um, uh, because uh, I have been very insulting about vaccine hesitancy uh, over the course of this week. Um, I'm annoyed. I can't take it anymore. I want to get out of this. And I have these people saying, well, it's not really tested. And how do you know? And my children, I don't want my children to, I mean, listen, you said, everyone said last year, trust the science and, you know, look what happened there with telling what mask you should wear. Now they say you should get the vaccine and the vaccine doesn't have enough studies and trials and blah, 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 which is actually not true. Um, uh, as, as in point of fact, um, since I was looking it up and, you know, the, uh, Pfizer vaccine alone had a trial of 45,000 people, uh, which uh, was the largest clinical trial in the history of the world. Um, larger than the trial of the uh, polio vaccine, as I, as I looked it up in 1953, 1954, um, and uh, the other vaccines and everything like that. So I'm, I'm mad and I'm like, I don't care whether you don't get a vaccine passport. You know what? Stay, fine. Don't get it. Then you should have a vaccine passport. If you don't get it, stay home and rot in your in your dungeon because I'm not interested in you causing me and my family to remain in this uh, condition of frozenness. Okay, but there's there's a slight silver lining to the response we've been getting from our listeners in this sense. A lot of them want to very deliberately distinguish their feelings about this vaccine from the crazy anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy types who think all vaccines are terrible and have a sort of ideological, have staked out ideological ground for years on childhood vaccination. So I actually think that's a positive sign because they're hesitant, but they're not anti-vax. And I think that distinction matters to them. It, It doesn't, in effect, you're right, John, it has no effect on whether they get, you know, they're still not getting the vaccine. That's bad. I agree. But there's a way to bring them around. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to acknowledge that they're not like the crazy anti-vaxxers that we generally know and, 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 uh, dislike. 
it is, you know, I mean, they're, 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 they don't, they're neo, the slightly neophobic people who don't really trust what big farm is telling them. And I have sympathy for their, that perspective, even as I hope they outgrow it because we need as many shots and as many arms as possible. Okay. So I, I agree with you. And I'm, 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 by the way, I am uh, deliberately making fun of my own view, making it extreme so that people should understand that this is an emotional response that I am making, but so is theirs. I mean, that that's the point. They People are claiming that their vaccine hesitancy or whatever is based on um, a healthy skepticism about how much data there have been and how this has gone and all of that. And that's all well and good. And that sounds really nice. And um, no, they're scared of it. And that's an emotional response. And vaccine hesitancy may look to them or believe, they may believe in their own heads that their feelings about this are uh, related to, you know, serious, uh, you know, concerns where they, you know, but they're also not epidemiologists and they're not scientists and stuff like that. They're just like, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe this will happen and something bad will happen. So I don't, you know, I don't want to be a guinea pig is essentially what they're saying. You're turning everybody <clears throat> into a guinea pig. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, but, you know, um, we've all been guinea pigs for the last year. We've been guinea pigs in a world in which there is a virus loose in, 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 in the world. And so if you're saying, look, I don't think that I'm going to get it. So, I, or if I get it, it won't kill me. So I'd prefer to get it than not get it, or uh, it won't kill me, or uh, I probably won't get it because I'm not old and I don't have comorbidities and I'm young and uh, all this. So if you're not going to get it and you're getting a vaccine which gives you a little bit of it or, you know, interrupts its effect on your on your RNA, you know, in your this RNA uh, stoppage thing, um, why are you hesitant? I, I just want to bring up, I just want to bring up a point. I mean, there's a certain compelling logic to those who say, um, because this is a, a new vaccine technology, we don't have the results of, um, we can't possibly know what potential effects it has long term, uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the line. Fine. I get that. But the truth is, nothing has ever been introduced to the public that has endured a lifetime of testing first, right? You don't you don't test out a hundred a century to make sure that that there's no long term damage uh, for 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 anything. I mean, if that was the case, we'd still be waiting for polio and whatever else. The mRNA technology that is behind Pfizer and uh, and Moderna was deployed. The idea that this was the way to stop this virus was present in March of last year. It's not like it was September and somebody said, oh, let's try this in September. And then it was introduced in December. Uh, the the uh, idea behind this technology was, you know, and, and that th- this would be the way to go, started almost from the outset of the knowledge that the, that the that the virus was going global. So it was nine months, not three months, not four months. It was nine months. And it was a gigantic these were two gigantic trials, and now this is where I want to bring up uh, Ruthie here. So, and then, and then, basically, there is in one entire country on the planet Earth that has that that whose prime minister went to the head of Pfizer, 
made 30 phone calls to him and said, sell us the doses and we will be your, we will be the proving ground. Uh, because, you know, we can't survive this if we can't get out of it. We're too small. We're too, you know, we, we, you know, we need to, we need to get cooking again. Um, and, uh, that was a real, you know, uh, a real achievement. And, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy in Israel, right, Ruth? There is. Look, there can't be as much as it feels as though there is, only because of the number of people who have been vaccinated so far. I mean, since almost 5 million people have been vaccinated with both doses in Israel in a population of 9 million, um, many of whom are under age 16, then if you do the math, you realize that it's a huge percentage um, but what is disturbing to me about the hesitancy in Israel is um, that a f- there are a few things. One is when I first came to Israel, I was shocked to meet many people who had had polio, the ones who survived it, that is, on crutches, in wheelchairs. I was kind of surprised because growing up in the United States, even though I'm at that age group, I, I didn't know people who had had polio. And in Israel, there were many uh, limping around. Um, and that's number one. Number two, um, right before the pandemic struck, we had an outbreak of the measles, if you'll remember. It was worldwide. Um, and Israel was hit particularly hard because two groups, both uh, in America and in Israel, um, who were not vaccinating their children for the measles were the tree huggers and the ultra orthodox. M- not all, and again, I have to stress this: it wasn't all ultra orthodox. It was certain sects, but it began to spread after we had had achieved herd immunity. This was destroying the herd immunity, and I had to run out and get measles vaccines because it turns out that I was I missed boat. I was too old or too young or whatever, too old. I had missed it by a year when I was little. So I had to go get the measles vaccine because it was being transported on El Al flights between New York and Israel. Um, in, you know, ironically, because we were all locked down and we're wearing masks and everything that we haven't heard about new measles out, <laughs> new measles cases, because people weren't around each other to catch the measles. But What was disturbing to me was every column that I wrote about vaccines and about and 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 in praise of vaccines, I got such vicious uh, comments. More than I, I get vicious columns uh, comments about my columns all the time, but these were really vicious. And two two on two counts. One, the most disgusting, was comparing this to Mengele's experiments, to compare this to a Holocaust, uh, both as an, like that we were being experimented on by Big Pharma, which is absolutely, not only is it absurd, but it's just immoral to make that comparison. And the other was that it was like selection in the Holocaust, because if you're not vaccinated, you might not be allowed into your neighborhood swimming pool unless you show the, uh, a negative COVID test. Now, I'm sorry, those comparisons are so immoral that I can't, I don't even know where to begin. Um, it's one thing to be hesitant about a vaccine. You're afraid what, what, what effect it'll have long term, though 
apparently having had COVID can have long-term effects. People who have had it um, are, are going on TV here and saying, you know, I didn't believe, I thought COVID was nothing and I didn't believe in the vaccine. And now please go get vaccinated. I, my ears, I, my hearing is affected. My balance is affected. Uh, apparently the disease also has long-term effects. So I don't know, you know, the fear of the vaccine as opposed to the disease seems to me a little silly. Um, and especially when, especially when, when it's, it's shown already, we've seen people who already had it or having serious problems. There's a, it's strange, isn't it? Because you, I, I'm glad you mentioned lockdowns and how that has changed uh, with the, with measles cases, because I think in a weird way here in, in the U S in particular, the, the year of living on lockdown and the sort of in many cases, sometimes extreme fear mongering by public health professionals, but, but in general, the kind of overall sense that, wow, this is a completely different universe has, has created in a lot of people habits of mind about what level of, uh, of risk is, is safe and what level of risk is intolerable. And our tolerance for risk is way down, understandably, but that strangely does then when it comes to taking a new vaccine, to, to, to limit this, this situation we've been in for a year, the tolerance for risk is, remains very low. And I think that plays into it. I mean, there's a kind of, I really think these long-term habits of mind that we form being in lockdowns, particularly those of us who've been in cities where the lockdowns have been a year and schools have been closed and, and normal life really hasn't still in some cases hasn't resumed. Um, that changes how you approach new things. It changes how you accept risk in a bad way. And in this case, I think. Well, I mean, the other way of part of the thing that, that I find difficult to handle and now pulling away from my emotionalism into something more analytical is that it, it just strikes me that the people who are expressing this vaccine hesitancy, who are not tree huggers or the ultra orthodox, both of whom have different attitudes, um, uh, that, that govern this, right? The, the, the tree huggers believe that things like medicines and vaccines are unnatural and therefore uh, they are somehow contradictory to the good working order of man's harmony with nature and are it's bad. Um, and then there is this, uh, in, in relation, let's say, to the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, there is some very odd concatenation of this idea that uh, you are somehow interfering with uh, the proper working order of nature as expressed by the divine. Uh, that, you know, if God wills that people get COVID, God wills that people get COVID and then you, you get COVID or whatever, you know, uh, we throwing yourself into the arms of Hashem, Hashem will decide, um, that stuff. So those are two weird, those are sort of, that's a, that's a, that's an idea about the organization of the universe. My sense is that among the vaccine hesitant that I'm hearing from, that we're getting letters from and, other, and all that, that, that um, these are people who were skeptical about COVID from the beginning, and their skepticism shifts and, 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 and changes depending on the moment. So A, it wasn't going to kill you. B, uh, they said you shouldn't wear a mask, then they said you should wear a mask, so they can't be trusted even when they say you should wear a mask, and the mask becomes a you know, a, a sort of a, a mark, a sign of state control, and you can't believe anything that they say. So if they say that you should have the vaccine, why should you trust them? 
uh, the death toll is exaggerated. They're shoving statistics. They're shoving deaths into this category in order to accelerate the idea of the death toll and to make things look worse than they are probably because they want they want to see make sure that trump isn't reelected. this obviously being what would have been discussed in the you know in the summer and early fall and now there's a vaccine and it's like eh, i'm not going to take it so you take it i'm not going to take it but i think those people are all the same people and it doesn't make logical sense. In other words, if you're going to say, look, masking, if you're going to say the vaccine doesn't, you know, wasn't as bad as, as, as people said. And then of course there's this death toll. Let's even say for the sake of argument that the death toll in the United States of 540,000 people is exaggerated by half. I, I don't think that is a fair thing to say, but I'm just throwing it out. So it's 270,000 people. That already makes it the most dangerous epidemic in a hundred years. And you don't like the masking and you don't like this and you don't like that. And you don't like the vaccine. So the obvious answer to vaccine hesitancy is we're going to wear, we're going to wear masks for another year and a half. But as far as I can tell, the people that I'm hearing from were people who can't stand the mask mandates or don't want to wear masks but they don't want to do anything to mitigate the spread because they want to believe that it isn't what it is in front of our eyes. And that's what makes me angry. I would be willing to accept the notion that I, that I will not take a vaccine and in exchange for not taking a vaccine, I will wear two masks for another year. Uh, in order either if I get it, not to spread it to, to other people who also might not be getting it or whatever, or, or at least agree, or at least agree to a COVID test before you get on an airplane, or at least right. agree to a COVID test before you demand to go to your gym. I mean, it's not as though the, the, the big government is forcing you in jail. No, it's saying, okay, well, then you've got to do this instead. I mean, something. Right. I'm sorry to keep talking about this, but you know, there's again, there's like this fantastic good news today in my, as far as I'm concerned, because it it involves like my kids and Christine's kids. So Pfizer announced that there was a hundred percent that according to their trial of four thousand kids so far between the ages of twelve and fifteen, uh, there was a hundred percent reduction. There was a hundred percent safety. Uh, four thousand kids. Uh, tested for uh, the for the Pfizer vaccine, and it is entirely safe for them. Which means that, judging, I have a fourteen year old. Christine has fourteen year olds. Our our kids might be able to get vaccinated. And uh, any argument that will be made that they can't do anything, can't play sports, can't go to school, all of that will have a ready-made answer, which is drop dead. They're going back to school. You're not getting it from them. They're not getting it. So stop with your bullshit already. My only hesitation on on the optimism here is that once there is a safe vaccine, all the teachers unions are going to refuse to return to the classroom until every single child is vaccinated. And that's going to take time probably. So I'm, that's my only concern. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. But here, you know, something speaking of teachers and unions here, 
there are teachers making a stink because they don't want to get the vaccine and they think that that's so what? So they should be allowed to go back to teaching, even <laughs> though, you know, it's the opposite here also. It's like that's against my civil rights. And you say, well, you know, I mean, um, because so far what's happened, one of the reasons that they keep shutting down the schools and reopening certain grades has to do with the fact that the kids went back to school and then teachers spread the, the virus to the kids or to other teachers, you know. By the way, the, the last thing I want to say on the civil liberties point, because I, it's, uh, you know, I'm a... I'm as I'm I'm not a civil libertarian in the sense that it's not my highest and foremost value, but it is, you know, but I'm a civil libertarian like any American is a civil libertarian, is that there are certain conditions under which civil liberties are compromised, and those are emergencies. If you live in a if you live in a place where there is a nuclear accident and they, they announce that you can't go back to your house or you lived in Love Canal and you can't go back to your house, they can shut off your land from you because uh, something terrible Mm -hmm. is happening. If, you know, there's a flood, you know, when 9-11 happens, the military took over lower Manhattan. Uh, Basically, lower Manhattan was under martial law. This is the United States. There's not supposed to be martial law. It It was a colossal emergency. When there's a war, people get drafted. Drafts are, of course, unbelievable uh, infringements on on civil liberties and freedom, and yet the 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 safety of the country and the future of the country's experiment have to be protected. And a an epidemic is that. And so, yeah, your civil liberties are sort. And, and even not in emergencies, we're forced to wear seatbelts and helmets, and we're for, and you're not allowed to drive through. Right. Although those are weird. That those 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 go in a different direction because, of course. You don't have to drive in a car. Like, no one's making you, you can walk everywhere or whatever. You know, it's like, but in a world, and no one is saying that everybody, there should be a law that everyone should get vaccinated in the United States. But the notion that you, you, you get to do everything that everybody else does when you affirmatively refuse to participate in the mitigation has shut the country Mm -hmm. down to some extent for a year. Um, that, that is a violation of the social compact and and the social contract as, as, as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Israel's got a different, Israel doesn't have a constitution. So, you know, uh, and, and, and we had, I remember John saying to you, um, really in the beginning, you said that you took a long walk one day when you were going nuts under lockdown. And I said, Really, you're allowed to go that far? And you, you said, "What do you mean allowed?" And I said, "Well, we're only allowed to go a hundred meters from our front door." And and John said yeah. to me, "Said to me, uh, we have a constitution." So, what do you mean allowed? And I, well, yeah. you know, we're living where we're literally not allowed, and if we're caught without a mask, you know, you get a fine and things like that. We were yeah. not allowed. It was so, so right. he got, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. Anyway, so, Abe. But, but so, so, so that was then. Um, Ruthie, could you give us a picture now in hopes of like, you know, raising our spirits about the prospect of what a lo- large scale vaccine uh, penetration looks like? What's going on in, in Israel now? I mean, no, well, the first thing that's going on is the second we opened the airport, 
Um, Israelis flocked to like, okay, where can we go? Where can we go? I mean, now not every country is letting people in, but it's like, first of all, suddenly, um, and Israelis went to the Sinai. They opened the Taba crossing uh, into the Sinai. And um, Israelis are all flooding the malls, shopping, 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 and in the cafes and in restaurants. And uh, now it's interesting because we're still supposed to wear a mask because the health ministry hasn't yet said, okay, you don't have to when you're outdoors. Not yet, but it, but what they, apparently the police are no longer giving out tickets if you're not wearing a mask. And in the funny thing, the funniest part about it all is that even the biggest hysterics, there are these health authorities here who have become huge celebrities. I'm telling you, it's like a reality show. I've ne- you were lucky as an Israeli if you knew who the health minister was, let alone, <laughs> let alone the CEO of the health ministry or the uh, head of this hospital and the, that of that hospital and the coronavirus czar. These people are on television all the time, including with cameras in their homes. And let's see how you've been in the hospital for two days. How are your children managing and all that? So they've become huge celebrities. And I began to suspect that maybe the reason that they were not happy to come out of this crisis is that they're going to go back into anonymity. <laughs> um, and the funny part is even the biggest hysterics among them who kept saying, don't get too optimistic, don't get too optimistic. Even they are grudgingly acknowledging that they said, look, Purim came and went. And we didn't have a spike, even though a lot of people violated the rules and had Purim parties and block parties, not to mention mass demonstrations against Netanyahu. Um, they, uh, they, they have to grudgingly admit that the rate of infection has gone way down and the hospitalizations have gone way down and that this vaccine is working like a charm. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll see what we'll see what number of America of vaccinated Americans uh, tips that balance here. Because uh, as we've been saying for for months, that is obviously something that is having a similar effect here. That um, uh, you don't get on TV uh, as a as a as a doctor, and your contract on CNN will not be renewed if you say, you know what, it's <laughs> over. <laughs> right. uh, you needed to, you know, and those contracts, there's a lot of money uh, flowing there. And so people have a kind of suddenly have a kind of vested interest. And, and fame, you know, even without and the fame, money. And I fame, mean, absolutely. I right. mean, Dr. So, Fauci, would you have known who Dr. Fauci even was, that person in that job? You wouldn't have even known. That, you know. Yeah, the, gov- the government official who becomes a celebrity is a very dangerous toxic mix to <laughs> extract once it's been released. Yeah. They, they like it. You know, they're on the covers of magazines. They yeah. love it. They love it. Well, Ruthie, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us thank for you. this um, unprecedented look at, a, at another country's electoral cat- catastrophes <laughs> as we as we regard our own uh, with uh, it makes, makes you feel a little better about our system, uh, which we of course do nothing but uh, inveigh against. So, um, <laughs> so thanks so much. You and I will WhatsApp later. And for uh, remember 
That mug, Keep the Candle Burning, Commentary Magazine Podcast mug at merch.commentarymagazine.com, where you can also get your Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt, your Crushing Morosity t-shirt or sweatshirt, your Commentary Magazine tote bag, your Commentary Magazine something else, a t-shirt that's just the Commentary Magazine logo, and of course, our brand new mug for 20 bucks that will keep your coffee warm and inviting. Merch.commentarymagazine.com for... Christine and Abe and the absent Noah Rothman. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>